If you have your Bible, we're in Matthew chapter 1 this morning as we start a brand new series titled The Real Christmas, The Story of Jesus' Birth. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to go down the aisle. They have Bibles that you can use. They have Bibles that you can have. We've given away almost 600 Bibles since our church started just like this. You say, Christian, why do you say that every Sunday? Because normally no one will take one until I say that, and then people say, oh, it's okay. And that's normally when people raise their hands and ask for them. So if you don't have a Bible, this one's yours. Put your name in it. Keep it. We want you to have it. Go home and start reading it. Today we're in Matthew chapter 1. If you're just using this for today because you forgot yours, just throw it on the table uh, as you leave, and we'll give it to someone else next week. But today we begin the story of Christmas the same place God begins the story of Christmas. And it, uh, and it took God and I a little arm wrestling to get me to this point um, this weekend. And I want to tell you why in just a moment. Um, before I do that, I got another email this morning from, uh, from our mission family in South Africa. Dana, they said to tell you specifically hello and give you a hug. So if I can't get to you later, someone hug Dana on behalf of the, uh, the Door family. But there is a family and now a group of families who watch our church services every Sunday morning in South Africa. We have become their Sunday morning church. So they're videotaping this right now. Here's what, here's what I want you to do. On the count of three, I want you to say as loud as you can so the microphones pick it up, good morning, South Africa. Because I want them to know we care about them, we're thinking about them. So on the count of three, I want you to say good morning, South Africa, and they'll be shocked next week when they turn us on and realize that, uh, that we're talking to them. So one, two, three. Good morning, South Africa. And Jen and Brent and kids, we cannot wait to come and see you. We love you. We're proud of you. Keep doing what you're doing, and I hope all of you, or many of you one day, um, can go over there with me. But she said, Christian, we're starting the Christmas series next weekend. So we begin it here today. They begin it in South Africa next week in Matthew chapter 1. So as I was beginning this series, and we've tried to do some creative Christmas series the last few years at our church that would that would be interesting to people who didn't know Jesus, who didn't know God, who didn't really care about the Bible, but maybe during the Christmas season they've been into church. And this year as we put together our sermon calendar, we said, let's just talk this year about the biblical Christmas. And we said, what, sh what should we call the series about the biblical Christmas? And we said, here's an idea. Let's just call it the real Christmas, like the real thing, the story of Jesus' birth from start to finish. And as I begin to lay out this series, I asked God, I said, okay, God, where do you want me to start this series? Because there's a lot to teach on the birth of Jesus over the course of five weeks. So God, where do you want me to begin? And I felt like God spoke to my spirit and said, um, Christian, just begin where I begin. Uh, I've already wrote the story. All you have to do is tell it. So begin where, where I begin. And I thought, okay. So I opened my Bible to Matthew chapter 1. It's the first page of the New Testament. Um, and I looked at Matthew chapter 1, and I kind of skipped over the first 17 verses, and I got to Matthew 1.18, where it says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. And I thought, okay, I'm going to start where Jesus starts. And I started planning an outline and a message and a series around Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. And I felt like God said to my spirit, hey, hey, hang on, hang on, Christian. Um, I told you to start where I started. And I looked at my Bible and said, Lord, I did start where you started. And I felt like God said, well, what about, like, what about the first 17 verses? And I said, well, God, like, those, are, <laughs> those are just names. Um, like that, that's not important. And I felt like God said, are you saying that there's 17 verses in the Bible that you don't think are important? And I said, well, 
maybe a little bit. You know, I mean, like, like, I don't like it's just names. And God said, Christians, start where I started. And I thought, okay, God. So I, I went back to Matthew 1.1. And I read over every one of the 17 verses and what God began to reveal to my heart out of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which you'll see in a minute, uh, really lays a great foundation for the story of Christmas. So I want to begin Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 17. It's just a bunch of names, I'll warn you now. It's just a bunch of names till we put on our spiritual glasses and look at it. And, and we'll do that after we read through it. It says, this is the genealogy. You might circle that word genealogy and just write up in the margin of your Bible, family tree. That's all Matthew's trying to do here. He's just trying to show us who Jesus was related to. This is kind of the ancestry.com portion of Matthew chapter 1. This is who Jesus was related to. This is where Jesus came from, from a family perspective. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, it gets real exciting as, as we go. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Now, Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. Now, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Of Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jekinah. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtel. Shealtel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud. Abahud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Methan. Methan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Don't we all feel blessed and challenged spiritually by what we just read? I got through that and I thought, Lord, like that's just a list of names. And God said, no, Christian, you're not seeing it correctly. Because Christian, if you want to start by telling the story of Christmas, if you want to tell the story of Christmas and you want to look at the real Christmas, you have to tell the story of Jesus. And you have to tell the entire story of Jesus as I wrote it so that you can understand it the way I want you to understand it. Now, the story of Jesus was written down by four men who lived at the same time of Jesus. We call their books Gospels. The word gospel means good news. So four men, their names were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who lived at the same time as Jesus and his mother and his disciples said, we're going we're gonna to go ahead like newspaper reporters, 
and we're going to write down who Jesus was, what he said, what he did, where he went. We, we're going to record who Jesus was. And church history named these stories about Jesus the Gospels. So if you've grown up in church, you've heard this word Gospels. Maybe you've, you've heard people say turn to the Gospel of John or the Gospels or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel means good news. So when someone tells you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, they're saying turn to the good news of Matthew. What they're saying is the story of Jesus is, is good news for our world. But you say, why did four different people have to write down the story of Jesus? Because these four different people were writing to four different audiences, and they all had a little different, they all had a little different perspective on what they were trying to accomplish in writing about the story of Jesus' life. It would, it would be like if you're a college football fan, um, and I'm a college football fan, and yesterday there were a lot of kind of upsets in the world of college football that really benefited some teams um, and, and took some other teams and just completely ruined their seasons. And regardless, based on whether or not you're a fan of Baylor or Oklahoma State, who played one of the big games yesterday, and Oklahoma State upset Baylor, they killed him, um, yesterday was either a really good day for you or a really bad day for you. And if I had two different fans write down the story of yesterday, one would say, here's the story of yesterday, and it was the worst day in the world. And one would say, here's the story of yesterday, and it was the best day of the world, the exact same day, but written from different perspectives. That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did. They wrote about the story of Jesus the way that they felt the people they were writing to needed to hear it. So Matthew wrote the story of Jesus down, and he presented Jesus from start to finish as the Jewish Messiah. It was very important to Matthew. Matthew's the only gospel writer who wrote specifically to Jewish people. And Matthew used more of the Old Testament than any of the other gospel writers, Mark, Luke, or John, because Matthew wanted to prove the Old Testament said that there was this Messiah who is coming. And I want to prove from Genesis through Malachi that Jesus was who the Old Testament says that he was. So Matthew writes to Jewish people about the Old Testament Jewish Messiah, and he proves that it's Jesus. Uh, two weeks ago when we were in Israel, if anyone ever asked me, I've got a Jewish friend who I want to tell, them, tell about Jesus, what should I give them? I always say, tell them to read Matthew and the book of Hebrews. Because those are the two New Testament books that are written specifically to Jewish people that use the Hebrew Bible to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, Matthew and Hebrews. Matthew was the only author who said, I need to prove to Jewish people that the Old Testament Messiah is Jesus. Mark, on the other hand, was a great friend of the Apostle Peter. Uh, Mark was in the Garden of Gethsemane on that final night. He, he was there and was almost captured by a Roman soldier. Scripture says that he ran away almost naked because they, they grabbed his clothes and he just let his clothes fall off of him and ran away. But Mark heard the story of Jesus through the eyes of Peter. And Mark presented Jesus as a servant to humanity. If you read the book of Mark, all he does is talk about how Jesus served people, how Jesus helped people. And there must be something in the DNA of how Peter told the story of Jesus. Maybe in John 13 where Jesus was washing the disciples' feet and Peter said, no, you can't wash my feet, Jesus. You can't serve me. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have any part of me. And then Peter said, okay, then wash all of me. And Jesus said, no, that's not necessary. I just need to wash your feet. But Peter, I need to teach you how to be a servant because I'm, I am the master, and you're right for calling me master, but I came to serve people. Something in Peter's story that people picked up was that Jesus came to serve people. So if you read Mark, the shortest of the narratives of Jesus, only 16 chapters, you'll read about Jesus going from place to place helping people. It's the main narrative of Mark. Luke, on the other hand, was a medical doctor. Luke was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. And by the time Luke got around to writing, people were saying, oh yeah, that Jesus... 
Yeah, we saw the works that he did, and we heard he was hung on the cross, and we heard he raised from the dead, but, but he wasn't a real human. But he was just an angel. He kind of passed in and out from people, and he, he, wasn't, he wasn't like us. He didn't really die and raise again because he was an angel. He couldn't die. So Luke wrote his book to prove to people that Jesus was a human being. He talked about Jesus being hungry. He talked about Jesus being tired. He interviewed Jesus' mom and his aunts and uncles about when Mary got pregnant and kind of the, the details of not only Mary getting pregnant but, having, but, but giving birth and some of the things that Jesus did as a little kid because Luke wanted to prove, people that, prove to people that Jesus was a human being. So we see Jesus in his humanity presented through the Gospel of Luke and then John wrote his book to, to basically present Jesus as God. And he started his book saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word came. And, and he basically says, Jesus was God from the very beginning, and God came down from heaven to earth. And it's only when you combine all four do you really understand who Jesus is. But if we're going to give the story of Christmas, we have to start with the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus, at least in the book of Matthew, and you might just circle on your sermon notes, only Matthew and Luke even tell us anything about Jesus being born. Mark and John tell us nothing of the birth of Jesus. I used to be told when I was in seminary that if somebody becomes a Christian and wants to start reading the Bible, have them start reading the Gospel of John, and then after the book of John, have them start reading James, which is practical Christianity. And we had someone that did that. They came to our church, had never been to church, and never had a Bible, and they became a Christian, and they, I told them, I gave them a Bible, and I said, go read the book of John. And they called me alarmed. And they said, um, the story of Christmas isn't in the Bible. And I said, what do you mean it's not? A, the story of Christmas isn't in the Bible. It just starts with Jesus as an adult. I said, hang on, you're reading the wrong book. And I realized that people understand Jesus through American seasons. So I really needed to start with them at Christmas. So I started either in Matthew now or Luke. I either tell people read Matthew and go read the book of James or read Luke and then read the book of Acts. Because people want to start with Jesus where we understand he started in the manger. So only Matthew and Luke even tell us the story of how Jesus was born, but that's because both of them needed the heritage of Jesus in order to teach us the story of Jesus that they wanted to present. And Matthew presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Who was the Jewish Messiah? He was a king who would bring salvation to the Jews. The purpose of the book of Matthew, the purpose of the story of Jesus, the purpose of Christmas is to help us understand that Jesus was the Messiah, a king who would bring salvation to the Jews. Now, I've taught this before, but I just want to continue to solidify this in your mind. The Hebrew word for king who would bring salvation is Messiah. When we're in Israel and we go to church in Israel on the Sabbath, you hear them sing songs and they say, Yeshua Mashiach. It means Jesus is Messiah, Yeshua Mashiach. You never hear the words Jesus Christ that's an English-Greek saying. Yeshua Mashiach is Jesus' Messiah. Christ is a Greek word that means the exact same thing. So the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. Christ wasn't Jesus' last name, wasn't his middle name, wouldn't have been on the back of his football jersey, wouldn't have been on his birth certificate. It was a title. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the king who would bring salvation, and our English word is Savior. So the words Yeshua, Mashiach, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, and Jesus our Savior, those all say the same things in different languages. But Matthew wants to present to us that Jesus is the Messiah. And here's what God showed me through all these names in Matthew chapter 1, starting where he started. On the first day of Christmas, God said, here's what you need to understand. 
Before God tells us the story of a baby, and he will, he reminds us of our need for a Savior. Before I can tell you the story of a baby, and of camels, and of wise men, and of angels, and of shepherds, and a manger, before I can tell you that, I need to remind you for your need of a Savior, because only in the context of the world needing a king who would be their Savior does Christmas really make sense. So as we study the next five weeks what the real Christmas is, here's some things that we find out, starting in Matthew chapter 1. The real Christmas. The real Christmas is, number one, the most significant break into spiritual history in the history of time. It's the most significant break between let there be light and the very last word of the book of Revelation when God comes back and he sets up his rule and reign on planet Earth. Between let there be light, Genesis 1, and Revelation 22, the most important thing that happens in all that time span is not the flood, it's not the call of Abraham, it's not Daniel in the lion's den, it's not Moses in the burning bush, it's not the Israelites in the Red Sea. Those are all really great things. But the most important break into spiritual history is the moment of Jesus' birth. And what's so interesting is that the world has acknowledged that, or maybe I should say it this way, the, Lord, the, the world has practiced this fact without acknowledging it for many people. Uh, a, a few months ago, maybe it was a year ago, I got turned on to the show Duck Dynasty by some of my friends from southern Ohio who wear camouflage and hunt and wear Carhartt, you know, and it's just kind of our world. I came from a redneck part of very southern Ohio, almost northern Kentucky, and I saw some stuff on Facebook, and what, before I'd ever watched an episode of Duck Dynasty, someone sent me the testimony of the kind of the dad of the family, Phil Robertson, just telling his story. They said, hey, this guy's a Christian. You ought to check this out. For those of you who have friends and family members who maybe don't love Jesus a lot, but they do love Duck Dynasty, the entire Duck Dynasty family has put their testimonies on the I Am Second website. And I would encourage you to write that down. And for those of you who, who have people that you're trying to introduce to Jesus, that'd be a great way to do it, to tell them to go listen to everyone's story on the I Am Second website. But Phil Robertson made a statement that I, that I was intellectually aware of, but, but I had never really evangelistically or in a way to help introduce people to God ever used. And he said this, he was in a bar, he was a horrible drunk, um, he'd been cheating on his wife, and, and a pastor started coming into the bar and, and befriended him. And he said, this pastor told me Jesus was the one they set time by. And he said, if anyone can change the way the world sets time, I'm interested in hearing about him. Now, here's what he was saying, and maybe you know this and maybe you don't. If you and I were to correctly write down the year right now, we would write down the year if we were historians, 2013 A.D., and if we were to write about history long ago, we would write about 1000 B.C. Those terms are centered around the birth of Jesus. A.D. is from the Latin term Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. B.C. literally means something much more common. It means before Christ. And in the 6th century, there was a monk by the name of Dionysius Exegus. And he decided that for his monastery, they were going to mark time through the birth of Jesus because it was the most significant spiritual event in the history of the world. And for their monastery, everything that they marked time by needed to go back to the most significant moment in the history of the world. And they literally tried to estimate the time of Jesus' birth. 
And they said everything until then was counting down to that. So we're going to go backwards. We're going to start at the birth of Jesus and count up towards the end of the world. And then we're going to start at the birth of Jesus and we're going to change and we're going to go forward. So everything that happened since will be numbered up. Everything that happened before would be numbered up. But everything, this moment in time changed everything. So the year 2013 is 2013 years after Jesus was born. What year were you born? You don't have to say it out loud because some of you are going to lie. Anyway, what, what year were you born? I was born in 1978. 1978 years after Jesus was born. What year were you married? I was married in 1999. 1999 years after Jesus was born. What, what, uh, what, what, year, were, what year did you graduate from high school? Because you graduated from high school that many years after Jesus was born. And you know what? This year on 12-31-13, when that clock hits 1-1-2014 and that crystal ball drops and that 2014 lights up, that 2014 signifies 2014 years since Jesus was born. See, this monk said we're going to mark time by the most significant event that ever happened in the history of the world and then eventually the government began to keep that calendar as well. It's called the Gregorian calendar. And a little later on, the United Nations adopted it. And now the entire world keeps track of time and history according to the birth date of Jesus Christ. Jesus' birth, the story of Christmas, is the most important event that has ever happened in the history of the world. Jesus is at the center of how our, how our world keeps track of things whether or not they want to admit it or not. Secondly, the real Christmas is our link to spiritual salvation. And this is what Matthew was trying to get across, and this is why Jesus wanted me to go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, because we don't get past verse 1 before the most important spiritual facts of Jesus are given to us. Look at Matthew 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, Yeshua Messiah, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Savior, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In that sentence, Matthew has told us the most important things that we'll ever need to know about our link to spiritual salvation. By telling us that Jesus was the son of David, Matthew was telling us that Jesus was a part of Israel's royal line of people that trace back to David. As a matter of fact, for those of you who are kind of Old Testament history buffs, Every name from David all the way to the exile of Babylon were all the kings of Judah. If you want to go and memorize the kings of Judah, there they are for you in Matthew chapter 1. Basically, Matthew was telling us, here's Jesus the Savior, and you need to know he's come as the king of Israel. He's come into the royal line. Now, for you and I, because we most of us have grown up in the United States of America, being a part of the royal family is kind of no big deal here because we, we don't really have one. But boy, you cross the pond and go to England, and maybe you were aware a few years ago that a couple royals got married in England, William and Kate. And this was like the biggest event in most people in the history of their lifetime. The biggest event that happened was the marriage of the future king to the future queen. Trumped only by when they had a child, and now the heir to the throne was born as well. You see, people that exist in the king and queen world, the royal line is very, very important to them. And Matthew wanted us to know that Jesus has come to be king of Israel. Now, the Old Testament said the king of Israel would also be the savior of the world, but Matthew went a step further, and he said Jesus came as the son of David, 
and the son of Abraham. If David was the, the DNA link to the royal family of Israel, Abraham was the DNA link to the spiritual family of Israel. So Matthew wanted us to know that Jesus has come to be Savior. He's come to be King of the world, and he carries within him the spiritual seed that God plans to bless the world through. Now again, we don't, in our world, we don't think of people like, like the Jews would think of Abraham, ex except maybe in some ways. I read this week that Dr. Billy Graham was checked into a hospital in North Carolina because he was having some respiratory problems. And as I was preparing my message this week, I thought, you know, when Dr. Graham dies, our, our world, our American world, will celebrate his spiritual heritage. He's going to be on the cover of every newspaper. He's going to be on the cover of every major magazine. He's going to be on the cover of every major website. Because really, America, America has linked to their history the spiritual legacy of the Billy Graham ministry. It just does. But there's not a lot like him. But in Israel, that would have been Abraham. Anyone who came out of the spiritual seed of Abraham carried within them the ability to be blessed by God and to carry a blessing for the world from God. In Genesis 12, 3, God told Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you one day. Now, this wasn't every Jewish person who would ever live. Abraham's grandsons were Isaac, uh, were uh, Jacob and Esau. One of them carried the spiritual DNA of Abraham in his blood, and he loved Jesus, and he, he loved God dearly. One of them carried a streak of rebellion in him. He could really care less about God. But God said there's always going to be someone who eventually connected back to Abraham, who has the faith of Abraham in his heart. And one of those people that has the faith of Abraham in his heart is going to be used so that everyone in the world can experience that faith as well. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans. So Matthew wants us to know by saying Jesus is the Messiah, who's the son of David, who's the son of Abraham. He says, I want you to know Jesus is your spiritual link to salvation. The real Christmas also tells us when we glance over to the book of Luke that the real Christmas is our link to a human Savior. And I'm going to show you why this is important in just a minute. I won't ask you to turn there. You've got a little typo on your sermon notes. Uh, it's actually Luke chapter 3. But in Luke chapter 3, remember Matthew and Luke tell the story of Jesus being born. And Luke gives us a different genealogy. He gives us a different family tree. He just expands it and traces it back a little more um, on Jesus. Whereas Matthew traces Jesus' family tree to Abraham's family tree and to David's family tree, Luke traces it back in Luke chapter 3 verses 23 and verse 38. I won't read all the names this time. But it said, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. And it goes on to list dozens of names. And verse 38 says, The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. See, it was important to Luke not just to go back to the Jewish Savior, but Luke was writing to non-Jewish people like you and I, and he wanted to connect Jesus to the first person who ever lived. His name was Adam. And he wanted to connect Jesus to being God's son, not just Abraham's son, because it was God's idea to send us a human savior. Now, why is it important that Jesus was born a baby, a human being in our world? Hebrews chapter 4 gives us that answer. The author of Hebrews said, here's what's important about Jesus' humanity. We don't have a high priest. The word, the, the word high priest in the Jewish language, which just would have meant spiritual mediator, it's the author of Hebrews saying, we don't have a spiritual mediator. The person who goes between me and God, we don't have a high priest 
who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Hebrews 4 says you need to understand you have someone who understands your humanity. And when you're tempted beyond crazy, and when you're sad beyond crazy, and when you're discouraged, and when you're tired, Jesus gets all that because he was a human being just like you. Philippians 2.5 reminds us that in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So Jesus became a human being so that he could have some common ground when we were trying to discuss life with him in our relationships. Now, have you ever figured out how much easier it is to talk about life with someone you have common ground than, than with a total stranger? A few years ago, we had a girl in our youth ministry who was having a, a pretty serious procedure done in the hospital, and I went before her surgery to pray with her, and it was a serious enough deal that I stayed through the surgery so that we could make sure she was okay on the back end. And I'm sitting in this emergency room for two or three hours, and most of this time, there's a guy sitting across from me in this emergency room. He's with a different person, but we just kind of keep crossing each other's paths. And after about an hour, he realized that I was wearing an Ohio State sweatshirt, um, and he said, uh, he said, nice sweatshirt. You don't see very much Ohio State stuff uh, around Kansas City. And I said, yeah, well, I was born and raised in Ohio, um, so, you know, I, I'm still a Buckeye fan. He said, I was born and raised in Ohio. Where were you, where were you uh, born and raised in Ohio? And I told him kind of where I grew up in Ohio. He said, oh, that's crazy. I grew up an hour from there. And he told me the name of the town. And we were kind of both being pretty vague with each other. And he said, um, well, where'd you go to high school? And I'm from such a small town. If someone says, where are you from? I always say Chillicothe, Ohio. I actually grew up 40 minutes from Chillicothe in a little town called Bainbridge, but no one knows where that is. It would be like telling someone you grew up in uh, Overland Park instead of Stillwell. Like, you know, I mean, like you have to be from Overland Park to know where Stillwell is. Um, so he said, where'd you go to school? So well, I actually didn't go to Chillicothe. I went to a little school named this. He said, oh, that's crazy. I went to a little school named this. I think we played you guys in sports. I said, yeah, we did. And I said, my dad was a football coach. He said, my uncle was a football coach at this school. And come to find out, I knew his uncle. I knew his cousins. He knew who my dad was. We had intersected life for like five years and this guy I had never met before that I would never talk to since, because we had this common ground, basically we shared memories of our life together for the next hour and a half like we knew each other because we had some common ground and we knew where each other were coming from. I think some people don't feel close to God because they don't feel like God knows where they're coming from. And they, they don't feel like God knows their pain. They don't feel like God knows their hurt. And they don't feel like God knows their discouragement. They just don't think God could relate to what they're going through. But here's what we find out in Scripture. We find out that Jesus had times when he was really stressed out. So stressed out that he yelled at his friends sometimes. And it's like, I've probably been that stressed out a time or two. That's good to know. We find out that Jesus had issues with family sometimes. And you think about this Thanksgiving and Christmas season coming up and some of us in here are having issues with this family or that family, and it's, it's good to know that Jesus kind of went through that same thing with the people that he was closest to. We find out Jesus got hungry, Jesus got discouraged, Jesus got burnt out. There were times when Jesus had to take a day off and turn off the ministry phone and just say, you know, I, I can't do anymore today. Jesus was tempted like we're tempted. 
And he, he knows what it's like to, more than anything in your life, want to go against what the Spirit's telling you to do and have to, have to hold back. Jesus knows what it's like to lose friends and family to death. He knows what it's like to have his family turn their back on him because of what he believes spiritually, even though they don't believe that spiritually. And Jesus lived, like many of us do, with kind of this tension of, you know, we're really trying to live for God and our family maybe despises that a little bit or they think it's a little weird or a little off. Jesus was rejected by people, separated from people, abandoned by people. He lost friends because of his pursuit of God. I mean, like we hear about this Jesus and we think, oh my gosh, like he's, he's just like me. And God sent a human savior so that when you were in the depths of whatever you're going through, you could look across at Jesus and say, yeah, he kind of, here's where I am spiritually. And Jesus can say, I remember a time I was there. And you can begin a dialogue that can turn into a relationship because Jesus, just like you, was human. And everything you've suffered, he's gone through as well. So the real Christmas gives us a human savior that we can have a relationship with. And then finally, the real Christmas is our link to second chances. The real Christmas is our link to second chances. And I think Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 tell us this more than anything. Here's what's really weird about Matthew 1. In Matthew chapter 1, we find this genealogy. We find genealogies all over Scripture. We find them in Numbers. We find them in Genesis a couple different times. We find them all over First and Second Chronicles. We find them in Luke chapter 3. Rarely do they ever mention the name of a woman because the family line was not passed down through the line of a woman. And 2,000 years ago in Jewish culture, there would have been even less honor for women than there is today. But very seldom do we ever find the name of a woman in, in the genealogy of, of a man. Yet we see in Matthew chapter 1, they have kind of this ladies' night out in Matthew chapter 1 because, like, there's this, there's this group of women hanging out that are there to teach us that Jesus came to be the God of second chances. In verse 3, there's Tamar. You say, who is Tamar? I don't have time to tell her whole story. But if you're a man or a woman in here, who's maybe been rejected by your in-laws, treated poorly by your in-laws. I mean, you've really had a rough go of it spiritually. I mean, if, if I was to tell you the story of Tamar and how poorly her father-in-law and her brothers-in-law treated her, like, this had to be one of the loneliest people on planet Earth. Just a bad, bad, bad situation. Her husband died. I mean, she, like, she, she was left in a really bad place. And God picked her up out of her dysfunction that she lived in. And God picked her up out of her dysfunction and said, listen, I know, I know you've not had it easy. But I'm going to take you out of your place in history and I'm going to stick you into the most important place in the history of the world so that people can remember that it's people like you who haven't been treated the best, who stepped into a world of dysfunction and just got run over by it, who suffered loss every now and then, I'm going I'm to take people like you, and you're going to be a part of the story of Jesus. Later in, in verse 3, we see the name of Rahab. For those of you who know the, the Old Testament a little bit, Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab entered the story of God because the people of God were getting ready to go take over the land of God, and her door was open one night, and she let spies in, most likely to sleep with them to make some money. And then she found out they were men of God from the people of God. And she said, I've always had a desire to be close to God if he's real. 
And she entered the story of God from, from this place of extreme shame, from this place of extreme sin. God said, I'm going to open the door, and in the story of Jesus, we're going to tell your name because the story of Jesus is for people who are ashamed of their past. And the story of Jesus is going to be for, for people who, who need some radical life change in their life. And the story of Jesus is going to be for, for people who do things that they would never even share with anyone, but they always wanted to be close to God. The story of Jesus is going to be for people like that. In verse 5, we read that, the, that Jesus was related to a woman named Ruth. And man, if there was ever a more hurting soul in Scripture than Ruth, I'd like to find it. We read that Ruth got married to a man, and she lived in a place where herself and her brother-in-law and sister-in-law and her mother-in-law and her father-in-law, they kind of all lived together, and they lived in a place where the economy collapsed. They all lost their jobs. There was an extreme drought, and it was either moved to a place where you could be taken care of or stay here and die. So the entire family picked up and moved. She really had no home. And when they resettled in their new country named Moab, which is modern-day Jordan, her husband died, her brother-in-law died, and then her father-in-law died. So now she doesn't have a home, and she really doesn't have anyone to go home to. And in, in her life is the story of someone who'd lost everything. Every, they'd lost everything financially. They'd lost everyone that they were ever, ever close to. And it's the story of someone who, when it was time to go home, her mother-in-law kind of said, see ya. And her sister-in-law took off and left. And her mother-in-law said, you'll be all right. Just go home. And, and she said, I don't have a home. And I don't have a husband. I don't have anyone or anything. I don't, I don't know where to turn. Maybe your God will let me follow him as well. And we read the story about someone who had lost everything and who had no one even to go home to, who ended up meeting the man who would be not only the husband of her dreams, but probably the husband of anyone's dreams, who took her in and cared for her. And God said, I want to make sure when we tell the story of Jesus that we tell the story of Ruth. Because Jesus came for people. They don't, they don't have anyone to go home to. They might not even have a place to go home to. That's who Jesus came for, people like that. And then we read in verse 6 about Uriah's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. Not sure why Matthew chooses not to mention her name, maybe because he, he didn't want to basically honor the sin of David. But if you'll remember the story of Uriah's wife, Uriah was a soldier. He was married to a beautiful woman. When he went off to war, the king, his name was David. He was the one who killed Goliath. I'll tell the story next summer when I preach through the life of David. He saw Bathsheba taking a, taking a bath one night, had a lustful moment, brought her over, slept with her, sent her home. She got pregnant. He said, oh, no, what am I going to do? So he brought Uriah home from the battle and said, if we can get him to stay home for a night and sleep with her, maybe when he comes back from the war, he'll think it's his kid. Uriah wouldn't do that. He said, I can't go home to my wife when my fellow soldiers are on the battlefield. So David said, all we can do now is kill him. So he sent him back to the battlefield with a note to his commander in his hand that said, make sure this guy dies. And then when he died, he pulled Bathsheba over and said, I'm so sorry your husband's dead. You know, why don't you just come live with me now? I mean, you talk about someone who was used and abused by someone in a place of authority. They had a child. Their child died because of the sin that they were both involved in. Somewhere along the way, they both realized what they'd done, what they'd been a part of. Their hearts softened towards God, and they said, God, if you would forgive us and bless, even, 
even though we came together in such sin and rebellion, would you bless us now? And God blessed him with another son. His name was Solomon. He would become the greatest and most powerful king of Israel. Jesus came for people like Uriah's wife and Bathsheba. You know, as, as we study the story of Christmas, what we find out is that the real Christmas is about messed up humanity connecting to a perfect God through a willing Savior. It's about messed up humanity. Just read the names in Matthew 1. Just go study their stories and you think, my gosh, these people are jacked up spiritually. They make me look like the greatest Christian in the world. But Jesus came to connect a messed up humanity to a perfect God through a willing Savior. You know, I don't know of any season of the year, and I don't know why it's like this other than just to believe it's blessed by God, that celebrates knowingly or unknowingly the life of Jesus. Um, I don't know of any other time in the world that our country does that more than Christmas. Every time I drive down the road, I love to see the lights go on around town. From my neighborhood to the grocery stores, I love to see the lights go on because Jesus said in John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. And the, the initial institution of lights at Christmas came by the church who believed that there was supposed to be a light to the world. And I look at people putting lights all over all their stuff, and I said, they don't even know it, but they're celebrating Jesus as the light of the world. I just, I love Christmas because whether or not it intends to, it celebrates what God did through Jesus. But here's, here's what I have found out. The people in your life and my life, the Tamars, the Rahabs, the Ruths, the Bathshebas, we have, I believe, more opportunity to reach them between Thanksgiving and Christmas Eve than any other time of the year. There's something in the heart of people that's just a little more open to Jesus at this time of the year. And whether it's someone in your life who desperately needs a second chance, or whether it's someone in your life who you, you're, you're not judging them, but you're evaluating they're far from God, and you'd love to see them come close to God, I believe this is the time of the year where we're able to really invest in people and cash in spiritually on who Jesus was. That's why we've kind of designed this month spiritually, not just for you to celebrate who Jesus was, but for you to bring people to the manger of Jesus, like, like the shepherds and the wise men did that very first. They had to be pointed to where Jesus was. We've designed December 8th as Friend Day with Evangelist Clayton King, who's one of my favorite speakers on planet Earth. There's something in him that allows him to connect with people who are far from God, with people who hate God, with people who've had bad experiences with church. There's something in his message, in his spirit, that allows him to call people back to God who are far from God. It's why on December 8th, you've got to take advantage of this season and invite someone. It's why on December 24th, we're having two services. Jenny Lee mistakenly said our service was from 4 to 6. It's not. It's only one hour, 4 to 5 or 6 to 7. But we're having a Christmas Eve service where we're going to come and bring families together and take communion together and finish the Christmas story that night because a lot of people feel like they're supposed to do something religious on Christmas, but they just don't know what. And if you would invite them to a place they could hear about Jesus, maybe Jesus would grab another Tamar or Rahab or Ruth, someone who is in need of a second chance who would be open this Christmas season to it. Or maybe it's you. Maybe it's you here today. What's so funny is people can come to church every Sunday and still be far from God. People, people can be super engaged spiritually and then just check out for a month and come back and just think, man, I just need God, a fresh infusion. I'm like just empty spiritually. 
And maybe this series that is designed all month long to pour life into people today is going to begin by pouring life into you because it's what you desperately need this morning, a connection or a reconnection to a perfect God. Even though you're a messed up human being, you need a connection or a reconnection to a perfect God through a willing Savior. And Jesus offers that to all of us and to everyone we know this Christmas season. So this month, I believe, is going to be a month that God calls people to himself at our church all month long, specifically December 8 and 24, but, but maybe today in the first service with some people today that needed to connect to God. And maybe as we close this service, maybe this service needs to be wrapped by allowing that exact 